Hello, this is World Business Report from the BBC World Service, where we bring you the latest in money, marketing, manufacturing, and yes, much, much more. Please review us, rate us, share us wherever you can. BBC podcasts are supported by advertising. The Global Story, with smart takes and fresh perspectives on one big news story. Every Monday to Friday from the BBC World Service. Search for The Global Story wherever you get your BBC podcasts to find out more. Hello and welcome to World Business Report here on the BBC World Service. I'm Rahul Tandon. Plenty coming up on this edition. We're going to take you to India where a new media giant may be about to be born. But will Disney make it work this time? This is Disney's third attempt in India. It has come with three different partners. In the last attempt, it took over the largest, one of the largest media companies in India. It has still not managed to make it. And we're going to take you to Sweden as it celebrates 50 years of offering parental leave to both mothers and farmers as well. But we're going to start the programme once again by talking about farmers protesting in Europe as they've been back out on the streets. The sounds there of clashes between farmers and police in the Belgium capital Brussels on Monday where European agricultural ministers are meeting to discuss what many are now calling a crisis. So why are farmers across the continent so angry? Our correspondent Nick Beek has been out with protesters in Brussels. Here's what one Czech farmer told him. We're able farmers uh, from Czech Republic. Uh, we, we do all sorts of grains. Uh, cereals, you know, uh, rapeseed and things like that, you know. And it's become really hard to sell our produce, you know, because of uh, all the imports. It's not just from Ukraine, but it's also from uh, Southern America. It's also from Russia, you know. And, and the thing is that uh, the European Union demands a lot of, from farmers, you know, when it comes to protecting the environment, you know. And that uh, actually drives the costs up. You know, it's really hard for us to sell our produce right now. And what do you say to people who say for a long time now, a lot of European farmers have had subsidies, support, and, you know, this is causing disruption, but also, you know, they shouldn't complain too much. You know, the thing with subsidies, it comes with, uh, you know, a real, a real tight bureaucracy. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard for farmers to actually work in the field, you know, and work in stables and then come sit at the computer for several hours just to fill in the forms, which nobody actually reads in, at the end. So, so this is one of the problems. And also the subsidies are quite low right now, uh, not just in Czech Republic, but through all over Europe. Because it's the same level as it was in 2014. And uh, the inflation for, uh, since then has been like 30-40%. Everything has gone up and it just uh, doesn't cover the costs anymore. We've heard from a lot of farmers, haven't we, over the course of the past few weeks on the programme, talking about the cost of adapting to climate change and also about the problems of cheap imports from countries like Ukraine and Mercosur, the South American trading bloc. The farmers have told us that politicians are not listening to them. So let's hear from one of them. Anna Cabazzini is a German MEP from the Green Party and the chair of the Committee on the Internal Market and Consumer Protection for the European Parliament. In principle, I'm happy when people protest because, of course, that's also the quality of free democracy. And I think it's uh, yeah very interesting and, and important to also talk to the protesters and see what their exact concerns are. What is, of course, not acceptable is the high number of also violent incidents being reported at the moment in Brussels, but also in Germany, where, for example, 
some farmers' protests that were basically mixed up with also right-wing protesters, and they are using sometimes violent means. But there is a real depth of feeling, and one of the issues that does seem to be uniting the farmers is the Green Deal climate law and the impact that it's having on them. I have the feeling that this term in the European Union and the European Parliament, we saw a lot of laws on the Green Deal. But mostly when it comes to emissions trading system or also the industry, for example. But I have to say on the agricultural side, the Green Deal did not advance at all this term. So I think if the farmers really target the Green Deal, I don't really understand them. I understand them if they say the whole system is not working. For example, that farmers don't get adequate prices for their precious products. Some of the markets are being flooded with, with imports. And, and you are right. A lot of farmers that we have spoken to have raised the issues that you have talked about there. But specifically, we have spoken to a lot of farmers who say that in reducing emissions, it's making the cost of farming more expensive and they cannot afford that. Are they right when they say that or do they need to change? agriculture needs to change also for the sake of the farmers. I mean, I think farmers will be one of the professional group being most affected by climate change and they're like feeling it already at the moment. I think we need to rethink our system. At the moment it is, as you know, just the biggest owners of land getting uh, most of the EU money, a lot of EU subsidies, the biggest part of the EU budget goes to farmers. So I think there's a lot of money in the system, but we spend it not wisely. Um, it's about example, 60 billion euros a year that is being spent. You talked there about other changes you'd like to see. You talked there about farmers not getting paid enough for the products that they produce. You're talking there about the retailers. What needs to be done to tackle that problem? We have in a lot of different countries, for example, like in my country, in Germany, a very high concentration of very few big uh, retailers of five big supermarkets who have then an easy opportunity to, to, to really push down the market prices. And we have on EU level already a law in place that is limiting the buyer's power. But I think member states have to implement it better and have to also look at competition rules in making sure that, yeah, these big supermarkets don't just dictate the prices and with milk or with other commodities, it's sometimes really heartbreaking to see how little money the farmers get. Final question to you about the concerns of farmers, not just Mercosur, but Ukraine as well. How then do you tackle those problems? Do you say that those deals should not go take place? Should they be ripped up? I think with the Ukraine, it is a li little bit of a different problem. I think in the midterm, we need to think about the fact that if the Ukraine is really joining the EU, what does it mean for the agricultural subsidies, but also for the EU agriculture markets, because the EU Ukraine is such a huge agricultural producer. But, but, but should, yeah, there be, should there be, sorry to interrupt <laughs> you, but should there be a fixed <laughs> policy that if the EU is to import agriculture from another part of the world, it should adhere to the same conditions when it comes to climate change, when it comes to emissions that farmers in Europe have to adhere to? Yeah, when it comes to, for example, trading with Brazil as one of the Mercosur countries, I think it is really, really important to make sure that there's no dumping so that, for example, agriculture production doesn't happen on a deforested land or with huge number of pesticides that are forbidden in the EU. There is already some laws, for example, on uh, sanitary and phytosanitary measures where we have the rule that the same standards apply. 
but not to the production standards. And I think it is, of course, a little bit more complicated because you cannot just tell third countries, oh, don't use pesticides anymore or don't, yeah, don't use this and this method anymore. But I think there needs to be clear rules in the trade agreements that make sustainability more binding. The moment is very, very weak standards on sustainability and we need to raise standards for imports. Anna Cavazzini there, who is a German MEP. Let's now bring in Enrico Somalia, who is Deputy Secretary General of the European Federation of Food, Agriculture and Tourism Unions. Enrico, thank you so much for joining us here on World Business Report. We, we talked a lot about the farmers protesting at the moment. You're clearly somebody who knows what's going on. What do you think is the main reason we're seeing so many farmers out on the streets at the moment? Is it cheap imports? Is it those green policies? So there is not there is not only one reason. The reasons are multiple because this is a sector uh, with uh, long-standing systemic issues. It's a sector with clear winners and clear losers. And I think uh, the Green Deal and the Farm to Fork strategy are clearly not the main issue that farmers are facing. Uh, of course, they need to be better implemented. They need to have social acceptance. Uh, they need to include the social considerations to be really fully implemented. But the main issues that the agricultural sector is facing are is the unfair distribution of wealth across the food chain. Okay, so how do you change that? Sorry, sorry, though, but how will you change that? We have this meeting of agricultural ministers taking place in Brussels. What do they need to do to make farming more sustainable, particularly for those smaller farmers? Well, we need an holistic approach. There is not one size fits all. We need an holistic approach and we need to tackle those systemic issues, which are Primarily the process of concentration, the concentration of power that uh, uh, is really taking place at each and every step of the agrofood chain. It's the huge power of supermarkets. We need to deal uh, on the unsustainable approach to trade agreements, uh, for example, like the Mercosur one, which doesn't make any sense from an agricultural perspective. We need to tackle f- speculation in food commodity markets, which is not only pushing millions of people into hunger, but it's also detrimental for uh, for farmers and for farm workers, which are at the end of the chain. So these are the actions that the European Union should take. And unfortunately, what we are seeing is that they are particular, the European Commission and the EU Council is particularly targeting the green ambition of the EU. And okay. we also see some threat to the social standards, to the working conditions, which are already extremely complicated in the sector. Can I ask you about the price that people are willing to pay for food. You talk about the supermarkets. How many people have pointed the finger at supermarkets? But is it also about consumers in these times where, where you know, we have been in a cost of living crisis in many parts of the world that people just don't want to pay so much for food? And this is totally understandable. But the problem, again, is not to pay simply more. It is uh, about the distribution of wealth across the food chain. Where does the money that we pay as consumers really go? Um, uh, What is the proportion that goes to farmers, to small farmers? So you tell us, at the moment, what is the proportion that that goes to farmers? Well, the, re- the real winners, the real winners are the supermarket chain, are the food giants, not at all the small farmers and even less the agricultural workers, which are at the end of the chain. I mean, last week there were huge protests in front of the Lactalis uh, uh, dairy group from farmers because they are not getting enough for the milk that they are producing. And it is t- totally understandable. So these are the long-standing system issue- issues. And a, b- a big proportion of the farmers community is targeting those issues. It's not targeting 
targeting the farm to fork or the green deal and is even less targeting the social standards which okay. are needed are necessary Enrico, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. Let's quickly bring in Rachel Winter, Partner and Investment Manager at Killick, who's going to be with us throughout the course of the... It's interesting, isn't it, Rachel, when we hear those conversations about unfair trade deals. We've got the WTO, the World Trade Organization, meeting at the moment. We hear a lot of those concerns in many sectors nowadays, don't we? We do indeed. And if we look at agriculture within the EU, it's worth about 1.4% of their overall GDP. It's not super high as a percentage, but that 1.4% is worth well over 200 billion euros per year. So that's a big number. That means it's still a very important sector. And furthermore, the situation in Ukraine has made a lot of countries very aware that they need to be more self-sufficient. And I think agriculture is a very important part of that. Yeah, we are seeing that with the protests that are taking place. Rachel, stay with us. Let's move on to another story now, because airfares in Europe, well, they could rise by 5 to 10% this summer. That is according to the boss of Ryanair, Michael O'Leary. He's blaming that on slow deliveries from Boeing and maintenance issues with some Airbus aircraft. They, of course, are the two main suppliers. Let's bring in Simon Calder, travel correspondent of the London Independent newspaper. Simon, always a pleasure to have you on the programme. For our listeners who are not aware, just explain what are the problems when it comes to supply at the moment from Boeing and Airbus? Well, there's dual problems which are very, very different. So Boeing has actually been unable to increase the rate of 737 MAX aircraft deliveries, which it had planned for 2024 because of that in-flight scare in January. You'll recall that uh, it was um, very dramatic. A door plug blew out from the fuselage of an Alaska Airlines 737. Soon after it took off from Portland, Oregon, the plane landed safely. But immediately there were concerns about quality control. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration is demanding close supervision. It's not allowing an increase in deliveries yet. And over at Airbus, and we're talking here about the other great short haul aircraft, the Airbus A320 series, some of those are powered by a really smart uh, new engine, uh, Pratt & Whitney GTF, standing for geared turbofan. Unfortunately, Pratt & Whitney has found that there's a potential problem involving contamination in the powder metal that they use for key components. Therefore, the engines have to be inspected. And that means up to two months that the the engines are taken off, taken apart, inspected, put back together. That requires specialist teams. And it's affecting a whole range of airlines, JetBlue of the US, Indigo of India, all Nippon Airways and Wizz Air and Lufthansa of Europe. You're right there, because we're seeing this huge expansion, aren't we? And a lot of airlines expanding as people begin to travel again, Asia growing very quickly. So when we hear Ryanair saying it could send up prices, are other airlines saying the same? Uh, well, yes, it, it's not exactly um, that, that they're saying we're going to put the, uh, the, our prices up as a result of these. It's simply a reflection of what is happening in the market. Uh, it's the it, supply and demand. It's mo- most most evident at uh, the moment, for instance, uh, in about 10 days time, I could fly from London to Tirana in Albania for about $20 or less. 
But in summer, and that's what in the northern summer, that's what we're looking at. Uh, fares are off the scale, and you, you could easily pay for a three-hour flight, five hundred dollars or more. And because there's so much demand, people wanting to make up for lost uh, vacations, lost family trips, lost adventures. Uh, so much demand that uh, if there isn't enough supply. That means higher prices, and a whole lot of airlines, including, for instance, EasyJet, uh, uh, Ryanair's big rival, aren't affected at all by the problems. But they are benefiting from the overall rise in fares, and that's uh, also reflected worldwide. Simon, briefly, if you don't mind, the problem is when it comes to supply, it's not easy to correct that in the short term, is it? It absolutely isn't, and that's a reflection of the fact that, uh, well, Airbus and Boeing, the two big manufacturers, really don't have any rivals, and that they've got very full order books. Um, and there's a, a, an organisation, Comac, in China that started making a rival, the C919. Um, that, uh, but unfortunately, the deliveries for those are mostly going to the domestic market and the long-term trend in aviation is very simply um, that the number of suppliers reduces. So, uh, yeah, no no obvious end in sight, and that could continue right up until uh, the end of the decade. There we go. Simon Calder there, as always, when we are talking about travel, has the answers to the questions that we want to know. But unfortunately, sometimes the answers we don't want to hear. Rachel, uh, Boeing really has been one of the stories, business stories of the year already, one of the iconic companies of the US in real trouble. Yes, indeed. And the shares have been very weak for obvious reasons. Ryanair and many other airlines are now calling for compensation from Boeing because of these delayed delivery problems. We don't yet know how much compensation Boeing might have to pay, but nevertheless, the impact on the shares has been very negative. But as Simon suggested just then, some of the airlines are actually benefiting from this. Um, So airline fares have gone up a lot. Consumers seem to be very willing at the moment to pay these higher fares. And we have seen Ryanair shares moving up towards their pre-COVID levels. And even EasyJet is going back into the FTSE 100 after it experienced quite a big rise in its own share price. For just as long as Hollywood has been Tinseltown, there have been suspicions about what lurks behind the glitz and glamour. And for a while, those suspicions grew into something much bigger and much darker. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm Una Chaplin. And from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service, this is Hollywood Exiles. It's about a battle for the political soul of America. And the battlefield was Hollywood. Search for Hollywood Exiles wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Will Business Report from the BBC World Service. Let's move on to one of the fastest growing entertainment industries in the world. Two big media companies in India. Well, they could be set for a mega merger, which will create a huge media company. Reliance Digital. Technology se Yeah, I remember hearing that advert a lot when I was in India. That is Reliance, the other company in this potential merger. Well, it's one that many of you will have heard of. It is Disney. So why are these two companies potentially now about to join forces? A question for Vinita Kohli Kandekar, who's the author of the India Media Business. These companies have been in India for 30 years. Disney's been in India for 30 years. Rupert Murdoch has been in India for 30 years with Star TV. Sony's been in India for 30 years. So these companies have been around. 
all they are doing is they're consolidating their businesses as the threat of the tech media majors has become big in India, like it is in the UK, like it is in the US. We are all in the same boat. So either you scale up or you sell out. Paramount is selling out. Disney is selling out. Consolidation is driven more by the need to scale up and tackle digital competition. And is that going to work, do you think? Because we're talking about Disney merging here with Reliance, one of the biggest companies in India. Will the scale that they have be enough to resist the competition that you're talking about? The Reliance Disney scale is something else, Rahul. You're talking of a company which combined would have 32% of television viewership in India. And television is still very robust and profitable in India, which would be the second largest OTT after YouTube. 316 million uniques, one third of viewership share, and they have film studios. If it gets regulatory approval, it's a big one. And also, you know, we were joking. There will there won't be any independent companies left, you know. We'd be we'd be left with four or five companies owning all the media in India. Tell us about the development of the Indian entertainment industry. Many people globally, of course, know India because of the Hindi film industry and often called Bollywood. But there has been a huge expansion, hasn't there, in TV over the last few decades. Is that continuing? Are we seeing an industry that is continuing to grow very rapidly? TV has done very well in India. It's like half the media in India. So if I say 25 billion, about 10, 12 billion will be TV of that industry. So TV is huge, but TV is seeing some maturity. But the industry which is just shooting through the roof is obviously everything to do with digital. So whether it is music going digital, video going digital, but a bulk of that is Google and Meta. So that that is the worrying part. And so Reliance in itself here, because Reliance is such a huge company that's involved in many aspects of life in India, does it feel like it's going to be able to compete, though, with those tech giants that you're talking about there? In terms of scale and capital, yes. But in terms of management and the media jobs, I'm not very confident. It's, It's a creative business at the end of the day. So you could have all the money in the world, but if you can't, don't understand consumers and don't have the patience to invest and hold hands with creative, then you will have trouble. Has that been Disney's problem? We're talking about one of the world's most iconic companies in the entertainment <laughs> industry. Why Why has Disney not been able to crack India? I've written so much about this. I'm not sure that Disney will like to hear the answer. This is Disney's third attempt in India. It has come with three different partners. In the last attempt, it took over the largest, one of the largest media companies in India. It has still not managed to make it. It is still selling that company or allying with someone else to let go of majority. Disney is very American-centric, very driven by the American stock markets. And nothing wrong with it because American stock markets create far more value for it than anything in India could probably do. It's too American. It wants to reuse the American IP. And India is a deeply, deeply local market. 90% of films... 90% of television, music, everything is local. You have to think locally, think in Hindi, Marathi, Gujarati, Telugu, Tamil, whichever language you're serving the audience in. And your management should be in that language. Rupert Murdoch understood that. Sony has understood that. For some reason, Disney simply just does not get India. Rachel Winter still with us. No happy ever after for Disney in India. But it's interesting, isn't it, that a lot of traditional media companies are now facing competition from tech giants in this space. 
We are indeed. And I think the saying goes, if you can't beat them, join them. I think Disney has been trying to beat Reliance. It hasn't been successful. It's now selling part of its business to Reliance. And I think that will be good for Disney at the moment. They will receive some cash as a result of this deal. And that will help Disney to focus on its core problem at the moment, which is making Disney Plus profitable. Rachel, thank you very much for that. We started the programme in Europe. Let's end in Europe now because Sweden is celebrating 50 years of paid parental leave, which meant mothers and fathers could split that leave between them. The policy was very slow to start in the 1970s with little pickup, but after a national campaign, more men started to take leave. Our reporter Maddie Savage battled her way through the snow to speak to a father currently on parental leave. Hello. Hey, Martin, it's Maddie from the BBC. Hi, welcome up, floor five. Thanks. Martin Roxland is 39, and he's the deputy CEO and co-founder of a fast-growing tech startup called Froda. He's spending six months at home with his daughter, whose current hobbies include eating books and exploring the family's dishwasher. This is Siri. She is 10 months old, and she also has two older brothers, so she's our third child. Wow, so you're on parental leave for the third time. So how's it all going? It's less of a stress the third time. It more feels like not business as usual, but uh, you know what to do. Uh, But it's great to get to spend so much time together and actually get to know her before uh, she starts preschool. It's fantastic. Before launching Froda in Sweden, Martin worked in Denmark, the Netherlands, South Africa and the UK where he rarely had any male colleagues who took parental leave. I think there is a big difference between Sweden and other countries that in Sweden it is generally accepted uh, for a normal, say, office job that you need to have solutions in place for for both uh, men and women to to have that sort of work-life balance. A lot has happened during the last 10, 15 years. So even if you work for, I don't know, a hedge fund or a private equity firm, uh, fathers take out parental leave nowadays. So what does that mean practically for workplace culture in the office then? I mean, obviously, it has an impact that people disappear for 6 to 12 months. You need to plan for it. On the other hand... Being so common uh, and widely accepted nowadays also for fathers to take out, take out leave, it's less of an issue. You need to then to just all companies build the structures and foundations for, to, to be able to support it. And as a growing company, as you continue to try and expand and bring in new people to the business, I guess you've got to be very flexible and very agile because you never know who's going to come in and, and take time off. I think for larger companies, it's probably easier. You have a large organization who can help fill the gaps. But, I mean, we've made it work even since I took out my first parental leave. We were six or seven people in a startup environment. Uh, How did that work practically? Were you still on emails in the evenings or did you get someone to fill your shoes? How did you manage to, to do that? Obviously, it's a big difference if you have actually co-founded a company. You Then you don't switch off your work mode entirely you still have the accountability so you want to stay part of certain processes but uh, I've always tried to delegate as much of the day-to-day work and the operational work as possible. Maddie Savage there reporting from Sweden. To listen to the full program just search for Business Daily wherever you get your podcast. Rachel, different parts of the world moving at different speeds on parental leave, but it is an important concept, isn't it? And important for employees to feel valued by a company. 
It is. It was really interesting to hear that. But just anecdotally, when I look at the friends of mine who have had children, it does seem to be becoming more and more common for shared parental leave to happen. So I certainly do know some fathers who have been able to take a good time um, off work to look after their new child. So even though the UK is definitely a long way behind Sweden, we do seem to be moving slowly in that direction. Rachel, thank you for all your contributions during the course of the programme. Rachel Winter there from Killick. We've had many members of staff here. Fathers who've been off on parental leave recently as well. Very much a changing scene in many workplaces. One that is welcomed by many people. Sam Fennick will be here tonight with Business Matters, focusing on some of the issues that we've been discussing in this programme.